Laudator Jesus Christus, praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. Hello, Brian. I hope you're doing well today. Yes, happy uh, Feast of the Ascension, a little day, a day late, but... Yes, exactly right. And we'll get into uh, today is also, is, it, is today a, a rogation day or was that earlier in the week leading up to the Ascension? I think that was... Tuesday and Wednesday, that, yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. So we'll talk a little bit about the rogation days when we get into the liturgical section of our introduction. But before we do that, we'll give you a, a, a brief overview of what we're going to be covering this week. So first of all, Pope Francis has released a new apostolic letter through which he has instituted another uh, new lay ministry, that of catechists. So we're going to get into all the details about that. Also, the impending persecution of Catholic medical professionals by the so-called Catholic Biden administration. And this is specifically dealing with the Health and Human Services Department, also led by a so-called Catholic. Uh, next on our list, we have the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's recent intervention concerning USCCB policy formation. In other words, telling them to slow up in their plans, which is really only a plans of about a handful of the, the United States bishops to mm. call certain so-called Catholic politicians to account and whether or not they should be receiving Holy Communion. All the while, the Vatican seems to be turning a blind eye to the blatant disobedience of the, the German Episcopate and, and many, many priests and deacons and other Catholics in Germany concerning the whole issue of same-sex blessing, blessing of same-sex unions. Yes. And then we will end on a somewhat of a positive note. There are some positive signs in France concerning resistance to what is being called concessions to Islamism, which is really just Islam. I don't yes, like I don't know Islam. what that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the term Islamism because it somehow distinguishes it from Islam. They're, they are definitely one and the same, as we mm. shall see. So, before we get into all the news, as we always do, we'll take a brief look at the church's liturgical calendar, and uh, as I usually say, you know, ponder the things that are above briefly. And that uh, scripture quotation is from uh, first. <laughs> or excuse me, from Colossians chapter 3, and I just, I'm going to pull that up real quick because it's very applicable to the feast that we celebrated yesterday, the Ascension. So St. Paul says in Colossians 3 uh, verses 1 to 3, therefore, if you be risen with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Mind the things that are above, not the things that are upon the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And then verse 4 says, When Christ shall appear, who is your life, then you also shall appear with him in glory. So a very good verse to meditate on for the Feast of the Ascension, which was yesterday. Unfortunately, in a lot of... Uh, dioceses, at least in the United States, I'm not sure about the situation around the world, but most dioceses in the United States transfer the feast to Sunday. But uh, as we know from scripture, our Lord ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, and that falls on a Thursday. 
Yeah, it's part of their essentially eliminating all holy days of obligation, just conflating them all with every Sunday. Right. Yes. I wanted to read one other uh, quote to uh, help us reflect on the significance of the feast from yesterday. So this is an excerpt from a sermon of Pope St. Leo the Great, who we celebrate in April. He says, Dearly beloved brethren, let us also rejoice with worthy joy, for the ascension of Christ is exaltation for us. And where the glory of the head of the church has passed into, there is the hope of the body of the church called to follow. Let us rejoice with exceeding great joy and give God glad thanks. On this day, not only is the possession of paradise made secure for us, but in the person of our head, we have actually begun to enter into the heavenly mansions above. So very much harmonizes with that passage from scripture that I just read. Hmm. And I, I think Brian was going to mention, maybe give a brief explanation of the rogation days, which lead up to the Feast of the Ascension. Yes. Yeah, so they're, again, a very old tradition in the church, another one that was just swept away by the liturgical revolution. And they're, they're performed on the Tuesday and Wednesday leading up to the Ascension. And there's a special liturgical procession which is followed by a proper mass of rogation. So a mass that has all specific uh, propers to it. Um, and uh, basically what would happen in the procession is uh, you, in, the, in medieval times particularly, they would walk all the boundaries of the parish. So the whole, you would leave the church and kind of walk along and bless the boundaries of the territorial parish, and then also bless the fields. Uh, and it has a strong connection to the blessing of the fields, which typically would be planted around the time of the Ascension, which happens in, you know, sometime usually in May, depending on the movable Feast of Easter, but to bless the fields and the newly planted crops and to pray for um, God's protection on them. And, and the, the part of the rogation procession is the litany of the saints with, with then special intercessory prayers uh, and a psalm added at the end. Um, now, in, in more modern times, particularly as territorial parishes grew, uh, often you didn't walk the whole boundaries of the parish, but the boundaries of the church property, for example, in our time, you may walk the boundaries. Uh, here, when, the one we went to, they also blessed the little uh, vegetable and herb garden that they have at the priory, uh, their little field uh, as yes. on the way around the boundaries of, of the church. So again, it's another, uh, we were talking about the ascension being transferred. So much of the modern Novus Ordo Catholicism is to align with Protestantism, as we've talked about. And much of Protestantism is it's a Sunday thing, right? You, you, there's no such thing as daily mass, right? They might meet for a scripture study on a Wednesday evening, but there's like, once you go to Sunday, that's it. You go to Sunday, have your little service and that's it till the next Sunday where, you know, Catholicism, the, the, the practice of daily mass, the integration into the daily life was essential to the liturgy. It's not just a Sunday thing. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the, the rogation days are just another example of that, that they wanted to get rid of just like transferring the Ascension to Sunday, like, oh, just Sunday to Sunday, that's it, that's all you need, there's nothing else. This is not part of your, your daily life. Uh, and again, a, a beautiful ceremony to remind us of, uh, I, you know, many of the prayers are, you know, protect against storms and lightning and natural disasters and pestilence. And the, the us, name of the days itself is uh, from the Latin verb rogare, meaning to ask. And from the, yes. in the litany of the saints, there's a, a response, isn't there, that says, 
te rogamus audi nos, we beseech yes. thee, hear us. Yes. And it's ironic because, again, this is what they do in the new mass. They act like they're doing something ancient. But this is where they came up with the so-called bidding prayers or general intercessions that, you know, are like one of the worst parts next to the the, the handshake, the manhand, panhandling handshake of peace <laughs> in the new mass, right? So instead of these set prayers that are beautiful, if you read the rogation prayers, yeah, the ones that in the litany themselves that with the te rogamus audinos, um, because again, that's where they pulled that formula from where they, you know, now it's like, come as you are, make up your own. I remember when I was in school, it was like every class wrote their own prayers for the prayers of whatever they call the general intercessions right. you know so it's just you know nonsense stuff well, that the third grade may win their basketball game right, <laughs> right. You know, let us <laughs> let us pray to the lord which is uh uh which is you know translation of latin terogamus audios right is, is what they try to say we we, right. we pray to the lord um, but instead of the official, beautiful prayers of the church that are done on these special occasions, it's like, well, let's just do this every week and make up the most, you know, nonsensical, just whatever people feel like. Uh, I remember uh, a traditional uh, conference I went to once where the speaker said he, he wanted to infiltrate a Novus Ordo church once and just sort of take over the microphone. He said, because I, I think people are just so brainwashed to the in, how inane it is. He's like, I bet I could just start like rattling off prayers, like for the conversion of heretics and schismatics, let us pray to the Lord that the Novus Ordo mass may be abolished. He's like, people are always like, whoa. Uh, you know, Lord, hear our prayer because they're just so <laughs> mind numbed from it. I was like, I bet you could yeah. get away with that in some places. Uh, but uh, in any event, that this is the real origin of that. They, uh, that will lead to our first story. When all they want to do something new, they often pretend they're resurrecting an old practice when really they're abolishing a practice and just using it as a pretext for some novelty. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes. And I forgot to mention, I should mention today's date is Friday, May 14th, 2021. And very briefly, the saints, uh, some major saints that we've yes. celebrated on the calendar since our last show include St. Gregory Nazianzen, a, a wonderful yeah. fourth century bishop and doctor of the church who was a good friend uh, of St. Basil the Great. They studied together, both ended up becoming bishops. Uh, on May 11th, we celebrated the apostles, Saints Philip and James, mm -hmm. James the Less, so not the brother of John, the other James. Right. And then lastly, uh, yesterday, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, but obviously since the Feast of the Ascension fell yesterday, that was the feast for the day. But St. Robert Bellarmine is certainly uh, a saint that we want to remember, especially at Catholic Family News. Uh, he's a, a patron of catechists. That's mm -hmm. another, um, <laughs> yes. has more another uh, relevance for one of our stories today. And then, of course, we would be very negligent if we did not mention yesterday, May 13th, was also the 104th anniversary of Our Lady's first apparition at Fatima, during which she asked the three seers, quote, are you willing to offer yourselves to God to bear all the sufferings he wants to send you, or he may choose to send you, as an act of reparation for the sins by which he is offended and for the conversion of sinners? After answering yes, Our Lady told the children, you are then going to have much to suffer, but the grace of God will be your comfort. And just to give one more scripture that came to mind when I was thinking about the, those words of Our Lady, they reminded me of a passage from the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which is from Acts 14, which says, quote, 
And when they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and had taught many, uh, so the catechizing, you might say, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that through many tri tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. That's the verse that really struck me. Uh, we certainly have plenty of tribulations going on in the world today, so let us remember that it is through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom. Yes, and uh, also yesterday, in honor of the, the feast and the anniversary of the Fatima apparitions, Archbishop Vigano sent us and some other news outlets a beautiful supplication uh, to the Blessed Mother uh, to pray for the, the, the sad state of our world and seek her intercession, which is available on our website. It published at midnight, uh, May 13th, as uh, per his instructions. So yes. uh, please take a look at that. It's really a very consoling and beautiful, uh, beautiful composition. Yes. Uh, speaking of another composition, not quite so consoling, uh, as Matt indicated, Pope Francis has issued another motu proprio, which is a, a canonical law, a kind of decision or enactment of the Holy Father, not through one of the congregations, but directly by himself of his own direct authority. Uh, and, you know, we, if you're like me, you come to shudder when you hear he's issued a new motu proprio. Okay, so what's this one going to be? Is it going to be not too bad, like the proclamation of the year of St. Joseph, or is it going to be uh, more revolution in the church? Well, yeah. unfortunately, it's the latter in this case. Uh, Antiquum Ministerium of Pope Francis, his apostolic letter, motu proprio. Um, and uh, I, I think I've mentioned this uh, before, uh, whenever basically the conciliar church talks about instituting something ancient, red flags should go up. Because usually when they say we're instituting an ancient practice that we are resurrecting, uh, mm -hmm. it's actually some novelty that they want to introduce that they're trying to pass off, like Eucharistic Prayer 2 that they tried to pass off as the ancient canon of St. Hippolytus, which now substance scholarship has shown was actually written when he was heretical when he was condemned for heresy as a summary of the roman canon so it was like the cliff's notes version by a person at the time who was a heretic uh, but they passed it off as an ancient eucharistic prayer that nobody ever actually used so anyway same thing ancient things um the first words come from the beginning of it the ministry of catechist in the church is an ancient one so again, to give the illusion, we're just going back to something ancient, when in fact, the church, and as Pope Pius XII talked about this in um, uh, his, his encyclical Mediator Day, there's a false antiquarianism, which is sort of this uh, uh, archaeologist. Well, let's just go back and find something we found that some Christian did, you know, 2,000 years ago that the church got rid of. The tradition is the organic development of what the ancient church did right, with the church's guidance over time. So some things the church enhanced and developed through, through organic, careful monitoring over centuries. Other things that did happen in the ancient church, she got rid of, right? Uh, like the toleration of lay people bringing the Blessed Sacrament due to times of persecution uh, to those who couldn't come to the underground catacomb uh, masses. Yes, it was tolerated in times of persecution, but then when it was over, the church said, okay, that was an exception, got to get rid of it. And so again, they tried to, now they have, you, you're in the hospital, if you can get anybody to come see you, it's often a lay person, the priest just sends, and they act like they're restoring an ancient custom. So that false right. antiquarian is, is sort of digging in the past for something you can pull out and with 
completely disconnected from the tradition. And that's really the case here, because what does ultimately the Pope do? He establishes a new, quote, lay ministry of catechist. And this is all part of what we reported on when he amended uh, Ministerium Quaedam of Pope Paul VI to, uh, to uh, have women instituted into the lay ministries of lector and acolyte. Um, expanding and going beyond what Pope Paul VI did. So what did Pope Paul VI do? He suppressed, quote unquote, because he really can and didn't, he suppressed the minor orders, the orders of clerical state that moved toward the priesthood. And then in their lieu of the four minor orders and the major order of subdeacon, he sort of made up these sort of lay ministries. And instead of having an ordination to them, because that's clerical, had this mm -hmm institution of these ministries. Well, the role of catechist was an ancient practice which was part of the minor order of lector. So when one is ordained to the minor order of lector on the way to the priesthood, mm -hmm. one can read lessons in church. So for example, at uh, uh, Tenebrae or at some of the offices or at, at Matins, uh, or if there's no, not a solemn mass, a sung mass, you can chant the epistle as a lector. Secondly, you can teach catechism. You are invested with that uh, official clerical responsibility of, of being a catechist. Uh, and now, like the other minor orders, like acolyte, when the church grew over time and it was not possible to have ordained clerics perform the role of catechist, perform the, through the lector, perform the role of acolyte, there was a toleration of allowing lay men to fulfill the necessary duties. So that's why we have lay altar boys, right? Technically, they should be ordained acolytes, but otherwise we wouldn't have masses because there's not enough ordained acolytes on the way to the priesthood in, in outside of a seminary to do that. Mm -hmm. And so you have this toleration of lay uh, altar boys. Same thing, you have technically the clerical office of catechism, which comes from the priestly charge to teach of the three offices that Christ confers on the priest to teach, sanctify, and govern can be performed in the absence of an ordained lector uh, by a, you know, lay people who are filling in like altar boys. So that's the real uh, history of it. And notice you even see this um, in uh, the, the letter of Pope Francis, that it really is a clerical or religious role of catechist. He says in number three, the history of evangelization over the past two millennia, millennia clearly shows the effectiveness of the mission of catechists. Bishops, priests, and deacons, together with men and women in the consecrated life, so that's brothers and nuns, mm -hmm. devoted their lives to catechetical instruction so that the faith might be an effective support for the life of every human being. So what he clearly admits in history, the role of catechist was a, a clerical or at least religious in its primary focus, and it was incredibly successful. Right. But but uh, then he goes on a little further um, um, uh, down to say, oh, but uh, effectively Vatican II changed it all. Quote, beginning with the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, the church has come to a renewed appreciation of the importance of lay involvement in the work of evangelization. And he goes off about how the council started changing all this. Well, first pause. Let's see how that worked out. So for two millennia, it was seen as the role of bishops, priests, and religious, and it converted the world. 
Then we switch to it. Oh, let's just get lay people to do everything and, and downplay the role of the, the clerics, where that even if a lay person is teaching catechism, they are substituting in, in an extraordinary way for the clerical state. Uh, how has that worked out? plummeted, right? Since Vatican II, conversions to Catholic faith, the loss of faith among Catholics, the loss of catechesis has plummeted when it's been sort of disconnected from the clerical clerical state and this rise of laicism within the church that he says essentially Vatican II uh, brought about. And so now we need a new evangelization because it doesn't work anymore. Well, outside of this context, anybody normal in history would say, wait, this worked for 2000 years, it stopped working, let's stop this change, let's go back to what worked, but instead his, his method, like everything in the conciliar church is more of the same. So this doesn't work, well, let's just do more of it and maybe that'll be better. And so that's essentially what he does here uh, after rapsing lyrical about all the wonderful rise of lay involvement, lay apostolate, uh, uh, the lay apostolate quote is unquestionably secular. It requires the laity seek the kingdom of God by emerging in temporal affairs. So again, rather than being uh, spiritual, it's all secular. Uh, and, and after he sort of waxes lyrical for several paragraphs about that, what does he officially do? He therefore establishes, quote, the lay ministry of catechist. Now, I love that the Congregation of Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments uh, will soon publish a rite of inst institution of the lay ministry of catechists. So he didn't even like get this little, you know, <laughs> ceremony together. He's like, oh, I've done it. You go, go make up a ceremony, right? Go make up a ceremony because really this doesn't have a tradition in the church because there is a ceremony for the ordination of a lector that exists, right? It's performed on traditional seminarians uh, on their way to the priesthood. But this isn't that. I mean, he's making very clear this is in imitation of a clerical ordination in a lay ministry. It's a way to Protestantize the church because in many more liturgically minded Protestant denominations, they have this. They have lectors, catechists, deacons, all these titles that are lay people that have a little institution ceremony where the community kind of invites them to take over these roles. And that's essentially what this is all about, to make the Catholic Church not hierarchical so that even in the exception, when someone is performing or filling in a gap, there's still the reminder, I'm a substitute for a clerical role out of necessity, but to eliminate that clerical uh, the hierarchy of, of orders in the church and to sort of make it all lay run, which plays itself out in the, in the later story, you know, later story we'll touch on in Germany in their synodal path, where it's all, everybody's, you know, there's lay people, bishops all together voting in a little parliament they're having. And so that's what this is all part of, is to push this same agenda of uh, democratizing the church, making the church like a uh, French revolution you know, post-French Revolution, uh, democracy, like the Anglican Convention, where they vote on everything. Uh, so another just further degeneration of the clerical uh, minor orders that builds on uh, Pope Paul, the, Paul VI. So something I wanted to get your take on, Brian, because I, I came across this when I was uh, doing a little research about this story, just to get the mm -hmm. background on it. And I noticed on Vatican News, the official news uh, outlet for the Vatican, Andrea Tornielli, who is the editorial director yes. for the Vatican Dicastery for Communication, published an article said, uh, the ministry of catechist, a service with ancient roots that looks to the future. And the subtitle for it, the little blurb that uh, mm. kind of encapsulates the article says, 
The Pope's decision to institute the lay ministry of catechist is the fruit of a journey intuited, intuited by Pope Pius XII <laughs> and, and sanctioned by the Second Vatican Council and by the synods of bishops, especially the synod of Amazonia. And he gives this quote from Mystici Corporis Christi to claim that there's continuity between Pius XII and Vatican II and, and forward. He says, quote, Indeed, this is Pius XII. Let this be clearly understood, especially in our days, fathers and mothers of families, those who are godparents through baptism, and in particular, those members of the laity who collaborate with the ecclesiastic, uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy, occupy an honorable, if often a lowly, place in the Christian community, even though they, under the impulse of God and with his help, can reach the heights of supreme holiness. So maybe you can speak just briefly to, you know, there is a legitimate place, especially for fathers and mothers to be quote unquote catechists for their own children because they are the primary educators. And again, it's a, it's taking, misusing that quote because what he's talking about is exactly what you said, something different. There's a difference between educating your children and parents are vested with that authority and obligation by becoming parents because marriage is ordained to the procreation, rearing and education of children. So parents possess a, a, a mission to educate their children, but that doesn't make them strictly speaking catechists. Again, catechists are a specific term in the history of the church that is clerical and Pope, you know, Pope Pius XII is not saying, oh, let's get together and have a little ceremony to make it look like a quasi clerical state. It's it's not that he's saying, oh, the low people are, you know, the lay people are not, you know, worthy of anything, but it's, it's actually insulting to the lay state to say, rather than saying, well, you are married and you have this mission from God to educate your children, that's somehow good enough unless we have a kind of a quasi-clerical ceremony for you. So in mm -hmm. some ways, I think it's misreading Pius XII, who clearly saw these distinctions, and in fact, an insult to the laity. It's kind of like, yeah, you're really worthless unless you can pretend to be a cleric, instead of mm -hmm. acknowledging that there is you know, a path to salvation there with the important church's distinction. Remember, the church has always said, yes, most people choose marriage, but the other vocations are the higher way, right? They are the more perfect way. And that's that St. Paul says that. And it's not to say getting married is bad, but you have to acknowledge that it is it is the way of most people, but the higher way is the, the religious life, is the, the clerical or religious life. And that's, again, that's not an, that's not an insult to the laity. It's just, it is the reality. distinction between the natural right. versus the supernatural. Exactly. But what I find the insult is, well, what you do is just so worthless unless you can pretend to be a cleric when you're doing it. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Uh, I just found it very interesting that uh, yes. Mr. Tornielli is trying to use, uh, trying to rope in Pius XII to justify this new uh, lay ministry. I don't think Pius XII would appreciate that. <laughs> no, he would call it false antiquarianism, as he yes. does in Mediator Day. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we're got, next story, we're going to move into the more of the secular civil sphere. As I mentioned in the introduction, the, the Department of Health and Human Services has announced a pro-LGBT non-discrimination policy, which is actually very discriminatory against people who have conscientious objections to going along with their unnatural policy. Uh, so I have the press release from the HHS, which is currently, is now run uh, as of, what was it, late February, early March, um, by a gentleman named Javier Bacera, who 
actually really has no medical background per se. I mean, he's a he's a, a lawyer. He also spent many years in the U.S. House of Representatives, so a politician. Uh, and this is what the the HHS uh, press release says. Today, on, this happened on Monday of this week, May 10th, the Department of Health and Human Services announced that the Office for Civil Rights will interpret and enforce Section 1557 and Title IX's prohibitions on discrimination based on sex to include, number one, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, which is not biological sex, obviously, and number two, discrimination on the basis of gender identity, which is also not based in biology. It's based on uh, what psychiatrists call gender dysphoria. It's, it's still coded in the, the psychiatric manual as a mental disorder, contrary to what many would have us believe these days. So the press release goes on, section 1557 prohibits discrimination on the base of race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability in covered health programs or activities. The update, this new policy, was made in light of the US Supreme Court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, which happened last June, and subsequent court decisions. And just to give a uh, harken back to that case, uh, basically, it, it uh, created two new protected um, classes yeah. classes of people based on gender, you know, sexual orientation and, and gender identity. So in other words, a man who claims to be a woman and vice versa. And this is what um, HHS Secretary Javier Becerra said after announcing this policy change. The Supreme Court has made clear that people have a right not to be discriminated against on the basis of sex and receive equal treatment under the law, no matter their gender identity or sexual orientation. That's why today HHS announced it will act on related reports of discrimination. So what exactly is this discrimination they're talking about? I mean, are, are, are they claiming that people who identify as, you know, same-sex attracted or the gender opposite their actual biological gender are being denied basic healthcare. I mean, if that is happening, obviously that's wrong and that should be remedied, but I think what they're really getting at is they want to enforce, uh, they want to force doctors and other medical professionals to participate in what um, Bishop Schneider, Athanasius Schneider and others refer to as gender ideology and all that goes along mm -hmm. with it. Forcing them, forcing doctors, for example, to perform, you know, so-called sex change operations and administer um, hormone blockers or hormones to enhance, you know, try to change the person into the opposite sex, which is ontologically impossible. <laughs> so it's it's ridiculous. Not only that, and it violates the the most basic tenet of uh, the profession of medicine, which is do no harm, according to the Hippocratic Oath. And, and if you're mutilating, mutilating, yeah. mutilating the body of your patient or messing with their basic biochemistry, that is doing harm to them. Whether, you know, in scripture, that reminds me of the scripture verse, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's exactly what we're seeing from, from Isaiah chapter five. Um, so several Catholics have uh, Catholic groups and leaders have weighed in on this. Uh, Catholic news agency 
published an article on Monday after this announcement uh, was made. The headline reads, Catholics slam lawless HHS transgender mandate. And the article quotes a gentleman named Roger Severino, who is the former head of the HHS Office for Civil Rights and current director of the HHS Accountability Project at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So someone who has knowledge, you know, institutional knowledge of all of this. And he says, quote, Becerra is threatening to put doctors and hospitals that disagree with current transgender ideology out of business, mm -hmm. including those with medical, religious, or moral objections to conducting sex reassignment surgeries on minors. If you recall, in late February, uh, Brian and I discussed at the time this man who presents himself as a woman, Dr. Rachel, real name Richard Levine or Levine, was being vetted by the Senate for confirmation as the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, so working directly under uh, Mr. Becerra. And, and uh, Mr., you know, Dr. Levine refused to categorically condemn um, mutilating children, basically, and administering hormone changing and, and destructive drugs to children. I remember the exchange between him and Senator Rand Paul, and kudos to Rand Paul for pressing the issue because it needed to be pressed. Unfortunately, it fell on, on deaf ears for most because Dr. Levine was confirmed and is now the assistant uh, health secretary. Um, moving down a little bit in this uh, Catholic News Agency article, uh, on Monday, the Biden administration said it was extending protections against sex discrimination to include sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination, citing the, uh, the June 2020 Bostock v. Clayton County, where the court found that federal laws against uh, sex-based employment discrimination also applied to cases involving sexual orientation and gender identity, and remember, this also has to do with that Equality Act that Brian and I have discussed That's uh, has already passed the House and is being considered in the Senate, which would just further implement all of this gender ideology. Um, another reaction from a, from a uh, group that, that seeks to defend religious, uh, the religious rights, First Amendment rights, the Beckett Law Fund, uh, one of their vice presidents and a senior counsel said, in today's announcement, HHS says it will comply with the Religious uh, Freedom Restoration Act and applicable court rulings. I mean, that's just laughable. Uh, but it is these very rulings HHS is fighting to overturn in court. Uh, that's a quote from, let's see where, Luke Goodrich of the Beckett uh, Fund. Mm -hmm. And they do work, I think, similar to the Thomas More Society, which our, our friend and colleague Chris Ferrara works with. <laughs> and lastly, I wanted to quote from the uh, leader of an organization called Catholic Vote. And this was the this is what he said in response to all of this. Uh, the HHS decision this morning turns back the clock on medical sanity. That's a great line. This new HHS mandate is a transparent effort to substitute doctors' medical judgment in the highly experimental and politicized field of gender medicine 
Contrary to the misleading HHS announcement, no American is being denied care for broken arms or standard medical procedures based on their gender identity or sexual orientation. And again, if that were to happen, obviously that would be unjust and that would need to be remedied, but that in most, the vast majority of cases, that's clearly not what this is about. So the statement goes on, this move by HHS is a, a setup to normalize and strong arm doctors into administering puberty blocking drugs on children, performing same sex, or excuse me, sex change surgeries and more. And here's the important part for our audience, Catholic hospitals and doctors are likely to come under increased pressure and scrutiny as a result. So Again, as, words, as Biden did when he was vice president under Obama with the HHS, same organization mandate that required uh, Catholic organizations like the Little Sisters of the Poor to face millions of dollars of fines uh, or uh, pay for abortions and contraception uh, for abortifacient drugs. Yes, yes, both. Yeah, both contraceptive and abortions. Right. And uh, essentially the same thing, saying you have to do this or we're going to destroy you. So it's exact same technique we see again. Exactly right. And before we move on to our next story, I just wanted to briefly remind uh, our viewers that th this Javier Becerra is the very same who you, uh, up until his um, confirmation by the Senate as Health and Human Services Secretary was serving as the Attorney General of California. And I don't, I'm not sure if the lawsuit is still ongoing, but he has been, he and Kamala Harris both, along with Planned Parenthood, have been sued by Mr. David Delighton, the courageous yes. investigative reporter who exposed Planned Parenthood's mm -hmm. illegal activities selling body parts of aborted children. Yes. Um, so this is, this man is not, um, I mean, they, he and Kamala Harris ruthlessly went after Delighton, even to the point of raiding his apartment, seizing property unlawfully, just outrageous. So these are not what we would say honest, <laughs> yes. honest people who are really concerned about the common good. No. And, and it's important before leaving this story to help help people because a lot of times you know catholics traditionally don't know how to respond oh are you in favor of you know like you said not not letting a person who lives this lifestyle get their arm fixed and that's not what this is about what and you get confused so let's just go over the principles really quickly discrimination is something in and of itself that is either good neither good nor bad right because there's different types of discri discrimination um we discriminate all the time Right. So just take an example. If you're a teacher and students turn in papers, you discriminate between the right. You say, well, this one has got 100. This has got a 50. This is you. you that is. And there's nothing immoral or unjust about that. The important distinction that no one will talk about in these cases, the difference between discriminating on the basis of being and discriminating on the basis of actions. Right. Yes. So the unlawful discrimination on the basis of being is when you take a, a quality of being, an accidental quality of being, like race, the color of your skin, and say, I'm going to use that as a basis to discriminate, like whether you receive services, whether you can do things, which has nothing to do with it. It is an unlawful, unjust discrimination. So for example, I won't let you eat in my restaurant because of this quality of being that is just yours, just who you are, nothing you've done as opposed to discriminating based on action. So again, my example, you write an exam 
and I'm going to discriminate between you because one is correct and one isn't. Likewise, if you're hiring someone and they're a felon who is, you know, has a history of embezzling money, I'm going to discriminate against you and not hire you to be my treasurer because of your your actions, right? I, that, and there's nothing unjust about that, right? I'm just based on what you chose to do. I'm have to discriminate when it comes to what you're doing right now. Again, the difference if you uh, engage in a, a a a certain action that's unrelated to the decision I'm making. So I'm reading your exam, and you've chosen to be, you know, to uh, uh, do illegal drugs, right? in your past. Well, I can't, then there's no relation between reading your exam and that fact and saying, well, you took, undertook this action, but that's not relevant uh, to make a discrimination here, to make a distinction here. So mm -hmm. justified dis distinctions and discriminations are when the decision you're making is related to the willed actions of another. And then, you know, that's, that's justified. Unjust is when you use the action of another that is unrelated to the decision you're making, or you take a quality of their being. And again, they don't, they're not interested in any of these distinctions. Uh, and they just want to trump up false uh, scare tactics, like uh, that, you know, someone who engages in, so it's, again, it's like saying, if I'm a doctor and you come to me to get a, you know, have your blood pressure checked, I say, well, you're an adulterer. I'm not going to check your blood pressure. That's not relevant in any way, that right. action that you chose. And they act like that's what's going to happen, but that's not happening around the country. What they want is exactly what you said. You can't say, well, what you want to do, I cannot have any part in because it's immoral. Right. Uh, you can't say that. And you have to perform an action against your against the natural law in your conscience. So, uh, and ironically, it is a Catholic president and a quote unquote Catholic uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, who are enacting this persecution of Catholics. Yes. And our next story sort of picks up on that as a transition into it. As we've noted before, um, the there was a movement among some uh, U.S. bishops uh, to finally try to address the situation, this, this scandalous situation to have someone hold, sitting in the Oval Office who claims to be a practicing Catholic and who advocates radical uh, uh, promotion and funding of abortion. And at least a few have been saying, well, look, when the bishops get together for their annual meeting, we need to come up with a document that, that talks about, you know, a, a, a advice to priests, how to deal with this and how to mitigate this scandal of this person presenting themselves uh, to do exactly what St. Paul avoids against doing, receiving the body of Christ, not discerning, right? Not discerning all the truths of the faith. Right. And again, I was a bit skeptical. I didn't think this was going to go anywhere because I agree with Matt. I think this is a ultimately a minority uh, of the, the bishops. I think it probably would have been railroaded, but uh, people were already nervous about these noises. And Archbishop uh, Cordelione in San Francisco has already issued just a letter to his own priests giving guidance on this, saying that politicians who do this, now he doesn't name Nancy Pelosi by name, but it's pretty clear that's who he's talking about, should not be given communion in his diocese. So again, a few bishops are making gestures towards the right way, but people got nervous that they actually might get together and against expectations, adopt a uh, a policy making blunt, basically saying, Biden, you cannot go to communion unless you change your ways and Nancy Pelosi and Becerra and et cetera, et cetera. So then what happened, and we're, uh, I think, indebted to uh, Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register who broke this part of the story. On April 30th, Cardinal Blaise Supich and Cardinal uh, uh, Tobin 
two people who feature prominently in Archbishop Vigano's testimony uh, denouncing the um, uh, McCarrick uh, uh, gay lobby. Uh, their names appear uh, in his, his writing on that topic. Flew to Rome. Now, they are members of the Congregation of Bishops, but Penton points out they didn't go to the Congregation of Bishops. They were not there for any meetings there. The only place they went was the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and they met with Cardinal Ladera, who's the, the prefect. A few days later, it has been reported by multiple news outlets uh, that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith sent a letter to uh, Gomez, who's the, the head of the Bishop's Conference, uh, basically putting the brakes on this effort to maybe do something. And essentially, um, the, the letter from, and, and you know, various news outlets have seen a copy of it, um, says the congregation notes that such a policy, given its possibly contentious nature, could have the opposite effect and become a source of discord rather than unity within the Episcopate and the larger church in the United States. So rather than the ultimate goal being truth, right, it is this goal of unity. So what they're actually saying is you shouldn't do this because it will bring about the only sin, aside from ecological sin, that the current Vatican will recognize, and that is, quote, divisiveness, when it's convenient for them, right? When they want divisiveness, they're happy with it, but uh, divisiveness and disunity. And essentially saying, because not all the bishops, because they know they won't, will agree with this, don't do it. Um, the formulation of a national policy uh, was suggested, right, during the odd limit of visits, but they basically say, but we said, don't do it, you got to maintain unity. And then they lay down a whole bunch of hoops that the bishops have to jump through. They say, okay, if you want to do this, you got to send it to us. We've got to review it. You have to engage in, quote, dialogue first among the bishops, then with everybody, with the pro-abortion pro politicians. That's another important point that LifeSite News pointed out. They actually use the term, allegedly in the letter, not pro-abortion, but pro-choice, which, yes. is, which is unprecedented in church mm -hmm. literature because Words are important, and the Marxists, the communists know this. You have to change the vocabulary. Uh, and I actually watched that uh, film we've mentioned before, Roe v. Wade, um, that is a kind of a, 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 a review of how the decision came about from the perspective of Bernard Nathanson. And there's one scene where they show the leaders of the pro-abortion movement. So we need to change our terminology to, to be something that people will not see as pro-abortion, and they come up with pro-choice as a way of you know, changing the vocabulary to, to twist people's minds. And here you have the church conceding to that terminology by, by using it. Um, so they um, basically say uh, the, the, the formulation of some policy would, quote, best be framed within the broad context of worthiness of the reception of Holy Communion on the part of all the faithful, rather than only one category of Catholics. So again, trying to deceive, saying, well, instead of pointing out the real scandal in front of us, come up with some vague, ambiguous statement applicable to everyone that doesn't really address the real crisis. So they uh, essentially, it appears, as Penton alleges, that Supich and Tobin, who are completely, you know, on the side of these pro-abortion politicians and fawn all over them, went to the Vatican and got this effort destroyed. One little interesting detail about the letter, it's also noted that Gomez, and we've reported on this before, Gomez requested a copy of the letter Cardinal Ratzinger sent to Theodore McCarrick 
as then the primate of the, of the United States, uh, back when the bishops were discussing what to do about John Kerry, who was running for vice president, who would present this scandal if he were elected, and McCarrick hid the letter. He didn't show it to the bishops because right. it basically said you have to deny communion. Um, and then it got it, it, it was leaked and it came out and McCarrick had to kind of shuffle humana humana humana. Oh yeah, I had this letter that I hid, and he yeah. basically lied about its contents to the bishops and didn't show it to them. So Gomez says, "Send us that letter," and the CDF refuses. They basically say, "Ah, Cardinal Ratzinger considered that a personal communication that provides teaching. Uh, you know, uh, that was just his own private letter to McCarrick, and since he considered it private, we are going to respect uh, his decision and not make it public." So they refuse, even though everybody knows this letter because it's been leaked and made public, but they refuse to send it to him and basically say, ah, it was just a personal letter of Ratzinger, even though it was written officially to the primate of the country by the, the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And so yes. they are hiding the letter, just like McCarrick did, as pointed out by uh, Archbishop Vigano. So what happens when the bishops maybe are starting to get some courage, some fortitude to stand up for the faith and do something about it, immediately the Vatican uh, is pressured by the gay lobby and they step in and call a halt. Can't do it, can't do it. Well, guess who loved this? You guessed it, Nancy Pelosi. So she was asked about this topic just yesterday and here is her, uh, uh, her response, which you can imagine, she was just absolutely delighted and made the most of this Vatican intervention. U.S. Archbishops uh, and the Bishops' Conference are, 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 doesn't want to give any money or doesn't want to give uh, allow you to be, receive communion. Your no, reaction to that? No, I, I think I can use my own judgment on that, but uh, um, I, I'm pleased with what the Vatican put out on that subject. Did you read that? That'll be up to the individual priest? No, it basically <laughs> says don't be divisive on the subject. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hey, for the so, yeah, she, she, I look at that. Right when she is, um, you know, being uh, told by her bishop, you shouldn't re receive communion, how does she divert it away? Oh, look what the Vatican did. They said, forget about that. It's divisive. So she knows what's going on here. She's uh, totally clued in, even though she can't even seem to find words to speak. <laughs> I think the really frustrating thing about this whole story and all the verbiage that's gone into it is it's so simple and it's already covered in canon law. Yes. Canon 915 says uh, those who, and then it lists, you know, people who have been ex excommunicated or under some kind of interdict. But ultimately, it says those obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. Yes. And I tweeted yesterday in response to, to Pelosi's comments, uh, you know, a, a reminder to the USCCB and Cardinal Ladaria, neither dialogue nor consensus are necessary. Enforcement of divine and ecclesiastical law is. It, it's so simple. There's no need for all of this uh, lengthy, uh, windy discussion. They just need to enforce the law. <laughs> well, and the, the point is they don't believe this is sin. That's the whole root of the problem, right? They want to change church teaching. They've said this to say this is not a sin. And so if it's not a sin, then that canon doesn't apply. So this is ultimately, you know, what is behind change belief by changing praxis. 
if we if we don't do this, if we give them communion, the the only something's got to give here because we've got a contradiction. Well, then it must be they're not engaged in public mortal sin, which right. again, is is not true. But by contrast, the tale of two Vaticans. While the Vatican is telling U.S. bishops stop obeying canon law, stop enforcing canon law, they look the other way as the German. Uh, which is now, I think, openly schismatic, heretical church, right. uh, is doing exactly that. Not only defying canon law, the divine law, but a most recent instruction of the same CDF itself. So as we've reported, the CDF issued a, a uh, document that said that under the church is incapable of blessing unions, so-called unions of people of the same sex. It is impossible, cannot do it, right? And, and and told priests and clerics and bishops, you can't do this. So the bishops and clergy and other people in Germany basically said, forget about you, we're going to do it anyway, and called for a day uh, of blessing of all unions uh, in defiance, not only of the divine law and, and, and natural law, but of this specific determination of the CDF that this is not possible. And so there are many reports of this uh, occurring. Uh, here is one of them from uh, CNA, uh, and you can see by the uh, colors. Uh, this went on throughout Germany, and there are they went about blessing anybody that presented themselves, uh, no matter whether it was a man or a woman, two women, uh, two men. Uh, it didn't matter. They gave a particular blessing to whoever showed up. Again, here's just a collage of. Um, of some of the pictures that CNA at least uh, put out. And uh, so they were reported, and there's a variety of reports that um, over a hundred locations, uh, churches, I think that mostly means, but other locations uh, uh, where this went on, where there was an open defiance, disobedience of again, not only divine law, but this recent instruction of the, the CDF uh, going on, just right in the Vatican's face. And what has the Vatican done about it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There was no, so this letter immediately goes out uh, to uh, the, the U.S. bishops for saying we're going to follow canon law, right? Um, but then uh, this happens and nothing, absolutely nothing. We Total silence. And we're not surprised because as soon as the CDF uh, did this, Pope Francis essentially made some remarks uh, distancing himself uh, from uh, the the actions of the 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 CDF, the letter of the CDF. And again, I'll just show you uh, maybe one more picture. Again, you saw all the colors, but here's another picture. Uh, clearly, uh, two women, and here's this, I assume, priest, somebody vested, uh, <laughs> blessing them. And they made very clear they would, you know, anybody who is in any type of union indiscriminately just come on up. And the Vatican apparently takes no notice of their uh, their grave public scandal and act that, it, again, this is really interesting. As soon as a traditional, somebody says a traditional mass, they call it an act of schism, right? Archbishop Lefebvre consecrates bishops immediately declare him excommunicate as an mm -hmm. act of schism. Well, this is clearly a schismatic act. Right, because it is right. an act where you said this on the basis of divine and natural law you cannot do. Immediately you've been informed and you go do it right away. We don't hear any thundering claims of schism, heresy, excommunication, or even disobedience. It just looked the other way, 
And that's you know, what we can have come to expect from the conciliar Vatican. Yes, yes, indeed. All right, well, we don't wanna, we wanna try to end on a positive note today. <laughs> Uh, yeah. There is some positive news that we have found coming out of, of France, and in order to set up this story, I want to briefly cover some, some of France's glorious history, namely the Battle of Poitiers, sometimes called the Battle of Tours, in the year of our Lord 732, uh, which was led and won. The Christian forces were led to victory by Charles Martel, the grand, uh, grandfather of Charlemagne the first of the Holy Roman emperors. So uh, folks who are familiar with, with some of my writing for CFN and actually the first time I spoke at a, a Catholic Family News Conference, the subject matter was uh, Islam. And I also spoke for the Fatima Center on the same subject and that was published in a, a booklet called Fatima, Islam and Our Lady's Coming Triumph. And I just wanna read a brief excerpt from my booklet. It's a quote from a Dr. Thomas F. Madden, professor of history at St. Louis University and an expert on the Crusades and Muslim-Christian conflict over the centuries. And he's specifically talking about jihad because the narrative that we're constantly told uh, in, our in our times is that jihad is simply an inner struggle uh, for each individual Muslim to overcome sin and stuff like that. Whereas the entire uh, history and text of Islam say something very different, which we're, we don't often hear about. And specifically, you know, we would be uh, remiss to not bring in uh, some mention of this horrendous Vatican Global Health Conference that took place last weekend. And that will tie in uh, the Islamic part of the of that story into this current story about uh, the good news from France. So and it, and uh, actually interesting, we have a, an interview that's being released shortly that I did uh, with uh, Professor Brown and she mentioned the same uh, Professor Madden who's got some interesting writings on the Crusades and on the Inquisition. Yes. So, so just to give a little background, you know, the, the false prophet of Islam, Muhammad, supposedly died in the year of our Lord 632 so for a hundred years between his death and this battle, Islam was in constant war. And that's, you know, so from, it's pretty hard to argue that Islam is intrinsically inherently peaceful when from the days of the founder himself who engaged in jihad in a bloody struggle to spread the, the, the false religion of Islam and through his immediate successors, doing the same thing, how can you claim that Islam is inherently peaceful? It's just nonsensical. Mm. So here's what Dr. Madden says in his book, The New Concise History of the Crusades, quote, after the conquest of Arabia, Muhammad envisioned the continued expansion of Islam. Indeed, expansionism working hand in hand with jihad became an important component in the Muslim worldview. Traditional Islamic thought divided the world into spheres, the Dar al-Islam, which means the abode of Islam, and the Dar al-Harb, meaning the abode of war, the non-Islamic world. The Dar al-Islam consisted of all those lands directly ruled by Muslims and subject to Islamic, meaning Sharia law. That's the ultimate goal. 
Dar al-Harb, which included the Christian world, was the place in which Muslims were enjoined to wage jihad against unbelievers, capturing their lands and subjecting their peoples. Uh, in this way, it was believed that the Dar al-Harb would shrink and the Dar al-Islam would correspondingly increase until it covered the entire world, end quote. So that is the plan that they started executing, and pun intended, literally executing, um, following the death of Muhammad. So they started out in Arabia, of course. They swept up uh, northwestern into into northern Africa, swept all the way west across northern Africa into Morocco, swept up into the Iberian Peninsula, and overran uh, what is you know Spain, what is now Spain fighting and conquering the Visigoth Christian kingdoms there. And ultimately, after they had secured Spain, they started moving into France. And in 732, the, the Umayyad, who, were, who was the group of Muslims, you know, basically the Umayyad dynasty ruling the Islamic Caliphate at that time, uh, clashed with Charles Martel and the Frankish Christian army. And ultimately, Charles Martel, by the grace of God, was victorious. And that is really one of the um, major points of European history. It saved Western civilization and Christendom from complete annihilation and, and dimitude or servitude to Islam. Uh, if they would have lost that battle, we, Brian and I might not be here talking to you about this right now. <laughs> That's how important it was. So, you know, fast forward to modern times when France is again being invaded, not by armies, but through migration. And there, interestingly, this also has a history in Islam. It's called the Hijra. There's a great article by a, a gentleman named Andrew Bizad. We've published him in Catholic Family News but he has an article at 1 Peter 5 called The Final Hijra, A Warning on the Refugee Crisis, published back in September of 2015. And he explains that all of this mass migration of Muslim peoples into Europe is not just a coincidence. It is a form of invasion. Mm -hmm. And here's what he explains. Hijra does not mean migration in Arabic. Uh, but it carries a deeper connotation. In Islamic history, the Hijra was the event in 622, 10 years before the death of Muhammad, when Muhammad and his small cult fled the city of Mecca to Yathrib, both of which are in what is today Saudi Arabia, and the latter, which Muhammad renamed Medina, which means the city. This act marks three of the major events in Islam, which are, number one, the beginning of the Islamic calendar, the creation of the first Islamic government, and the prolific use of violence and torture to propagate Islam. So migration for in, in Islamic history is not simply a big group of people, you know, fleeing terrible, a terrible situation. It's a form of militant invasion of another area for the cause of Islam. And that's been going on for decades in France. I, I remember reading in Archbishop Lefebvre's biography that he spoke about that and was very concerned about that as well. In, uh, in the time. early 1980s, as far yes. back as then, yes. Yes, so it's gotten, and it's much, much worse now. 
So the earlier this week, uh, the BBC reported a very interesting headline, a very startling headline that says French soldiers warn of civil war in new letter. That's pretty strong language. Hmm. So the, the article opens by saying a new open letter has been published in France warning of the threat of civil war and claiming to have more than one, 130,000 signatures from the public. The message published in a right-wing magazine, we don't know what that magazine is or what, and, you know, maybe they're exaggerating, uh, but it accuses the French government and pr President Macron in particular of granting concessions, as it says, to Islamism. And I have a, it's granted, it's a Google translate translation of the letter in French, but it says, um, Mr. President of the Republic, ladies and gentlemen, ministers, parliamentarians, general officers, in your ranks and qualities. Then the letter says, we no longer sing the seventh verse of the uh, Marseillaise, known as the children's verse, yet it is rich in lessons. Let us leave it to him to lavish them on us. And apparently this song says, we will enter the quarry when our elders are no longer there. We will find their dust there and their traces and the traces of their virtues. Much less jealous of surviving them than of sharing their coffin. We will have the same, or excuse me, have the sublime pride of avenging them or of following them. Uh, and it goes on, our seniors are fighters who deserve to be respected. These are, for example, the old soldiers whose honor you have trampled in, on in recent weeks. It is these thousands of servants of France, signatories of a platform of common sense, soldiers who gave their best years to defend our freedom, obeying your orders to wage your wars or to implement your budgetary restrictions. And it goes on to say, uh, we are from what the newspapers have called, so the authors of the letter, the fire generation, men and women, active soldiers of all armies and all ranks. We love our country. Um, and if we cannot by law express ourselves with our face uncovered, it is just as impossible for us to be silent. So ultimately they say, uh, Afghanistan, Mali, the Central African Republic, or elsewhere, a number of us have experienced enemy fire. So they've been in active combat. Some have left comrades there. They offered their own skin to destroy the Islam Islamism to which you are making concessions on our soil. And basically they're saying, we've had enough. We're not going to go along with this anymore. So... Uh, in contrast to this story, I found it very interesting, very telling. You know, Pope Francis, I, know, I remember Chris Ferrara wrote an article for CFN uh, several years ago now called Pope or a Vicar of Christ or Vicar of Muhammad. I don't know mm -hmm. if Brian, Brian might I, remember that piece. Yes. Because Francis, I mean, one of the, def sadly, one of the defining characteristics of Francis's pontificate is his, um, his approach to Islam and his basically full-on surrender to it and louding of it, of a fall of a religion that 
you know, so many saints and popes in the past have condemned not only as false, but a, and, and perverse, you know. Well, that considers belief in the Trinity a blasphemy. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So just a, like a full-on surrender to this horrible false religion. So at, as I mentioned, in this recent Vatican Global Health Conference, uh, they, of course, had interreligious dialogue as an, an integral part of all of this, going along with the Abu Dhabi Declaration in early 2019, and then Francis's uh, encyclical Fratelli Tutti in uh, October of 2020. So one of the Islamic representatives is a man named uh, Sheikh Asim Yusuf, who is a consultant psychiatrist with a special interest in Islamic spirituality and mental health, according to this Alif Institute to which he belongs. And during one of the sessions for this uh, three-day online summit, we're going to play a brief video clip of this, uh, this man speaking. The session was called Religion, Spirituality, and Health, the Importance of Dialogue. And here's what he has to say about Islam. So it is important for us to dialogue because we inhabit this planet together. And at no point in all of human history has every human agreed on everything, or even on most things. When you are in a situation where disagreement is, in, in, is an inevitability, how do you prevent that disagreement becoming division? that division becoming conflict. Religion, and the Islamic religion particularly, which is what I am most qualified to talk about, can be fundamentally reduced to one concept, which is harmony. The Arabic for this is salah. It means to mend what is broken and to bring things into a state of harmony. From this word, salah, we have the term salih, and salih means righteous. This is what, what is a righteous person? A righteous person is one who mends what is broken. Yeah, again, so, first of all, he's not even being honest, because the fundamental tenet of Islam is not harmony, it's submission. Yes, yeah. exactly. And by his own definition of a righteous person healing what is broken, Muhammad is completely disqualified. <laughs> he he yes. didn't heal what was broken. He broke what was not in need of healing. So again, this is what he said, just to quote his words, religion and the Islamic religion particularly can be fundamentally reduced to one concept, which is harmony. That is only true for the true religion, the religion of our yes. Lord Jesus Christ and his church. That brings the human race into real harmony. Here's what Islam actually teaches from the Quran itself. I'll just give a couple of quotes. I know we're running short on time. It says, but when the forbidden months are past, then fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. Doesn't that sound so harmonious? Uh, here's another one. O you who believe, meaning Muslims, do not take the Jews and Christians for your friends and protectors. 
they are but friends and protectors to each other. And he among you who turns to them for friendship is of them. Verily, Allah does not guide an unjust people. That verse always gives me pause when I think about why in the world are all of, you know, the, the head of Sunni Islam and other Islamic leaders going along with the Abu Dhabi document on human fraternity when their own text says the exact opposite. There's got to be something more to that. Uh -huh. uh, personally, as I've said before on this show, I think it has to do with the Islamic doctrine of taqiyya, which means deception, which in Islamic history and, and by the practice of Muhammad himself, According to Islam, you are allowed to deceive your enemies into a false sense of security and truce until you are in a position to overrun them. Yes. I think that's, personally, I think that's what's going on here. Yes. Well, we'll just leave this story with a question. What did that have to do with healthcare, which was supposed <laughs> to be the topic of this Vatican propaganda summit? <laughs> exactly right. Yes. Unbelievable. So. Well, thank you for listening into our stories today. If you've enjoyed this free content, uh, please share it. Please uh, like it. Uh, please subscribe to our channel, particularly our Rumble channel, uh, in case we are censored from YouTube. If you're subscribed there, you won't miss any episodes. Uh, there, we may not be able to produce a news uh, roundup next week. Uh, next Friday due to some travel commitments that I have. But uh, if we can, we will. But if not, we have, I've already alluded to some interesting interviews I've been recording. Uh, one with Dr. Rachel Fulton Brown, which will be out definitely early next week, and maybe a few others next week. So we'll certainly still have content, even if we are not able to uh, upload a, a news roundup next week. Uh, and if you've enjoyed our free content, in addition to sharing it, please consider subscribing to our monthly uh, newspaper, Catholic Family News, either electronically or call our office, and um, you can order a paper copy. Yes. So in light of all this uh, difficulty in church and state, let us end by praying particularly to Our Lady of Fatima, uh, to our Blessed Mother, as, as Archbishop Vigano urges us to uh, be our mantle and our shield and to keep us safe uh, under her protection. Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, I offer the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the instruments of his holy passion, that thou mayest put division in the camp of thy enemies. For as thy beloved Son hath said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for your attention. God bless you, and we'll see you soon. God bless.